Welcome. This is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California, and this is the Private Law Podcast. My guest today is Rosanna Summers, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Professor Summers focuses her research on the empirical examination of people's intuitions about core legal concepts like consent, autonomy, and responsibility. Her work is part of the growing field of experimental jurisprudence and has appeared in multiple law reviews and peer-reviewed publications. Just as a heads up, in this episode, we will be discussing Rosanna's work, which covers topics like rape and sexual assault. Hi, Rosanna. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I wanted to start with a really basic question. What is experimental jurisprudence? Experimental jurisprudence is a growing field that uses methods from psychology, which is, you know, my background, I'm a social psychologist, or other um, empirical sciences to speak to debates that are traditionally associated with legal philosophy. So a lot of what we're doing is trying to understand how ordinary people, that is people who do not have any legal training, understand certain core concepts in the law. Concepts like, for instance, in my research, I study consent. How do ordinary people understand consent? Do they have a folk theory of consent? Um, but other, um, we call ourselves experimental jurisprudence or ex-jurists sometimes, but other people who take this approach, experimental jurisprudence, study other concepts that are core to law, like what is reasonableness? What is intent? What does it mean to own something? What does it mean to know something? Um, lots of different examples from lots of different areas of law. But the common thread is that we're all taking an empirical approach to try to um, sort of clarify these core concepts. Great. That's a really useful starting point. So if you had to trace the genealogy or the history of experimental jurisprudence, how would you explain it? How, how is it that scholars like you, with expertise on empirical methods like psychology and social psychology specifically, started to wonder about questions in the legal domain? So that's a good question about where the field comes from. The name experimental jurisprudence is sort of a play on the name of a different field called experimental philosophy. That uh, approach, um, some consider it sort of a critical approach to traditional analytic philosophy. Basically, the idea there is that, you know, a lot of um, philosophy comes from people introspecting about what they think about certain um, thought experiments or other problems, and that you can um, take those introspections from people who call themselves philosophers and use that to build out, you know, theories and implications of those theories. But what if when you actually survey just ordinary people, and a lot of them, um, not just philosophers, just uh, people who've never been trained in philosophy, and you ask them to report their intuitions on various thought experiments or philosophical questions, do you find anything that either diverges from what um, is sort of accepted within philosophy or do you find you know, interesting patterns in the way that ordinary people are um, reacting to different kinds of thought experiments? So like a really good example that I think has penetrated the public consciousness um, 
of experimental philosophy would be research on the classic trolley problem, which is a thought experiment asking about, you know, when it's okay to kill one person to save five people or let them die to save to save others. And psychologists and neuroscientists and people who are trained in these empirical techniques have taken, borrowed from, uh, I believe, Philippa Foote, the philosopher, this uh, thought experiment and used it as like a basis for conducting studies with people all different cultures, ages, sometimes put in the, uh, the brain scanner to see if like different uh, regions of the mind are activated when under different variations of the thought experiment. So um, experimental philosophy is taking uh, an empirical approach to questions from sort of like classic analytic philosophy. Experimental jurisprudence is sort of like the legal corollary to experimental philosophy. So what we're doing is we're taking um, an empirical approach to classic questions within legal philosophy or legal theory. So for instance, in my research, I'm really interested in consent. And one of the questions that I'm interested in, and a content warning for um, for listeners that I'm going to be talking about sexual assault and rape so an important doctrinal and philosophical question is what the crime of rape is. Is it a crime of non-consent primarily? Is force um, a necessary element of that crime? Can you have rape without force? Um, what are the boundaries of that crime? What what's actually is what makes uh, rape a violation and one worth punishing? And um, uh, that question has been uh, puzzled over by uh, lots of different legal theorists from, from different traditions and like the innovation, and I won't say I'm the first to do this, but what I'm bringing to the table is like uh, bringing um, psychological methods, including surveys, survey experiments, and lab experiments to study um, like the boundaries of what consent is in the mind of ordinary people. Great. So... It sounds like experimental jurisprudence really builds upon the growth of experimental philosophy at a more general level. Uh, and so it seems like experimental jurisprudence is taking that same approach of using empirical methods for answering traditional questions, in this case that have puzzled legal theories. So from that perspective, it seems that there is a distinction between scholars that are trying to answer questions about specific legal concepts that are relevant in specific legal domains. So I'm thinking about concepts like reasonableness, consent, etc. But there are also other scholars who are interested in answering questions about law in general. So do you agree with that distinction? Do you think it makes sense to make that division of the field? Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think you're right that there are some folks, like for instance, Raph Donaldson and Ivar Hanakainen, who are sort of in the latter camp. Like, what makes law law to the ordinary person like if you invent like a fictional society and all of their rules are you know constantly changing or they're not written down everywhere anywhere or things like that um you know without these different um Fullerian principles um what do ordinary people think makes something makes a system a legal system um that might fall into the latter cap that you're talking about um whereas others like me um and um and I guess some people straddle multiple camps, but, you know, so my research on consent is really asking about like a particular um, uh, concept that appears in law and matters legally. And I think lay people, when they hear consent, maybe even think of it as like a legal-ish word and wonder if they're being asked about legal consequences. But it's certainly, I mean, I'm interested in it also just as a moral concept. Like when do we think that we've waived our right to complain, you know, law aside, um, another divide that um, I think you can draw is between 
um, those who are interested in um, identifying the divergences between like ordinary intuition and you know expert intuition or the, the way the law treats something um, and those who are sort of interested in in focusing on the overlap and like how many, many like quite subtle and surprising aspects of our law are shared by ordinary intuition. And um, those are maybe two different kinds of insights that experimental jurisprudence can unsurface. So ways that the law in surprising ways can map on to um, ordinary intuition, or maybe you would think it's the other way around, ordinary intuition maps onto the law, and then ways that they really seem to diverge. And there might be like really different, maybe even potential for miscommunication when the same word <laughs> means one thing to one group and another, like in another context. Great. So let's move on to your work. I'll get to your work in consent in a second, but generally, what do you think is the main insight or contribution that the type of work on experimental jurisprudence that you do brings to legal theory? In other words, uh, I'm interested in asking why should legal scholars and legal theorists working, for instance, on consent in criminal law, pay attention to experimental work such as yours on the notion of consent? Yeah. Well, um, in my particular case, I'm not sure this holds true for every ex-jurist, but for my particular case, because one area that I'm really interested in is sexual consent, there's a lot of question about how much our law and how much the outcomes of individual cases are affected by things like gender roles or sexism or misogyny or, you know, the patriarchy and, and things like that. And one, uh, one technique that I often use in my research, I think it's controversial, but I find it really illuminating, is to examine consent uh, across many domains. So if I want to understand how ordinary people think about the relationship between consent and having someone lie to you or trick you, I might ask how people I might ask ordinary people to react to a scenario in which someone lies in order to gain your uh, agreement to have sex, but then also ask questions about what do you think about a situation where a police officer lies in order to gain your permission to enter your home or a doctor lies in order to gain permission to perform a medical procedure. And by asking about consent in like multiple domains, what I find is that you can sort of um, you can sort of uncover ways in which something that you might have thought was you know driven particularly by like sexual moralism or gender norms or patriarchal expectations or that sort of thing actually pops up in lots of areas that don't seem to implicate those same um, concerns. And so you might be actually uncovering something that's a little bit deeper or more pervasive than previously understood. And so one thing I like about experimental jurisprudence, especially the technique that I've been using where you can sort of construct vignettes or scenarios that sound a lot like fact patterns from cases, and sometimes we just actually just draw fact patterns from real legal cases, is that you can then sort of tinker with the cases, edit them, m match them on all different sorts of factors and just vary the one thing that you care about. And then, you know, by administering that to a large group of survey respondents, then you can sort of answer the question whether how much each factor is causally affecting people's judgments 
about each of the cases. And that's really hard to do if you're if you're not going to use um, fake cases that you were able to construct perfectly to test different hypotheses. So that's one thing that I think can be illuminating and that I would I would share with um, legal theorists and criminal law theorists, which is that, you know, um, this technique can really help us isolate different factors. Now, of course, there are downsides to that, right? If you isolate, then you strip of context, and there are obviously disanalogies between the sexual context and the policing context and the medical context. And, you know, when I talk about doing this across different domains, like there are uh, assumptions and um, arguments that need to be, you know, made to fill in those gaps, you know, leaping from one area to the next. But I still think that um, when you take that sort of perspective, um, you're able to sort of uh, ask what's special here and what's not special here. And I think that does represent progress. Yeah. So at one level, like from a purely academic or intellectual perspective, it's always good to know more about the world. And from that perspective, experimental jurisprudence has an obvious value, right? It tells us how specific agents understand and treat certain notions and concepts. But I wonder if you worry that experimental jurisprudence might also be used in certain uh, wrong or problematic ways. So for instance, let's say experimental jurisprudence showed us that certain conditions trigger or activate biases and negative predispositions toward criminal defendants in uh, members of juries. If that is the case, there's a worry that strategic litigators and more specifically strategic uh, prosecutors could use that information to their illegitimate advantage in criminal trials. So do you worry about that? Do you think there might be risks of misuse of experimental jurisprudence? Or is your view more that all forms of knowledge are susceptible to this type of misuse and that there's nothing kind of specific about experimental jurisprudence in this aspect? Let me say two things. The first is that I think that the most careful work in this area tries to be really clear about what we can and cannot conclude on the basis of, you know, our data, our survey evidence. And so there's one way in which you might be worried that, you know, more knowledge about the world is, is not, <laughs> is not helping things. It's actually worse. And that's if it's, if it's like misused and people, you know, for instance, in my research, I generally find that um, lay attitudes are much more permissive toward deception and lying than, uh, the canonical uh, literature on consent would suggest and that people think you generally can consent even when you're being lied to. And you know, that is a pretty problematic view in a lot of ways. And I don't necessarily think that the law should follow what ordinary people are saying they'd be okay with. Um, and if you thought that the point of experimental jurisprudence was to sort of identify the way that like legal elites have gotten things wrong and we need to make the law you know, match more closely what the ordinary person thinks and wants and would be okay with, then I think you would maybe worry about this research. But um, my hope, and I've seen this in a lot of ex-jurist work, is that um, people have, uh, the researchers have been pretty careful about explaining why you might still care what ordinary people think, even if you don't think that what follows from that is that the law should then change to match um delay expectations. Like there might be space for, and I know you've written about this, Felipe, there might be space for a divergence between um, the law's use of a term and like the ordinary expectation or ordinary use of that um, term. So that's that's one way in which you might be worried. And my hope is that we'll continue to um, 
clarify for those who sort of mishear what the point of the research is or what the implications of the research are, uh, that we'll, we'll clarify why we still think it's worth doing, even if it doesn't carry those implications. But the second thing that you're talking about, which is that, you know, once we learn about sort of biases or like ways that people can be, I don't know, manipulated or used or their biases can be harnessed, like, isn't that worrisome that that would sort of get out? It could be used towards ill ends. And, um, you know, I do sometimes think about that. I do sometimes worry about that. A lot of my... um, my lab research, so not research with vignettes, but research with people actually coming into the lab and us trying to get them to consent to various things that they don't want to consent to. I mean, a lot of it just shows how um, obedient, like shockingly obedient people are. It's quite easy to get them to do stuff that they're pretty uncomfortable with. So some of my research asks people, you know, before we begin the study, could you please unlock your phone and hand it to me? I'm just going to take it outside the room for a minute to check for something And, you know, we ask a control group, like, what would you do if a researcher said that to you? And most of them say, like, I would not allow them to search my phone. Are you kidding? There's all this private stuff on it. You didn't say what you're going to be looking for. They're going to be in a different room. I can't, like, see what they're looking at. So, you know, I wouldn't agree to that. And a reasonable person, when we ask them, what would a reasonable person do? They generally say a reasonable person would not hand over their phone to a researcher in that situation. But when we actually recruit people and actually ask them um, to let us search their phones, most people, upwards of 90%, are, are letting us search their phones. This is co-authored work with Vanessa Bonds at Cornell. Um, and in some newer research, I'm trying to study revocations of consent. So when people feel comfortable saying, like, never mind, I no longer want to do this, I'm backing out. And I haven't found a task yet that people are revoking consent on. So I just had to modify my RB to ask to do like even worse things to people. So in this one, it's like, it starts off like, you know, will you consent to pose for a photograph? And first it's just a photograph of them making a silly face. And then it's a photograph holding a sign with a kind of offensive message on it. Uh, you know, it says F you on it. And then, you know, a photo of you like looking passed out drunk with all of these like beer bottles around you, you know, um, just escalating and escalating. I even asked participants if they would, like, this is something my undergrad RAs told me was like the most mortifying thing you could ask them to do. But can you like open up your Instagram and go to an account page of somebody you don't know that well, scroll back a couple years and then like, like an old photo of yours, thereby implying that you were stalking them and like looking, you know, very, very far back into their photos. And I like no one's revealing consent on that either. So anyway, the point of all that is that, you know, this research is suggesting people are quite obedient. They're quite willing to do whatever you ask, even if they don't want to. Um, They're not going to revoke consent very easily. And, you know, to a much greater degree than you would predict, than the control group would predict. And so if that research, quote unquote, gets out (laughs) into the wrong hands, you do worry, you know, do we want um, salespeople and police and, you know, bosses and authoritarians knowing this about people? I I certainly don't. Um, On the other hand, uh, I do think it's important research and that if we understand human psychology better, we can, you know, we can come up with better safeguards. We can make our law more responsive to that psychology. And, um, you know, I am generally in favor of freedom of inquiry. So I do think that, you know, if the, if the research is true, um, it should be, it should be published and people should learn about it. Even if it, even if it, we do worry about how it could be misused. Excellent. So let's go back to legal theory. So I am a theorist of the law of contracts. And there's some empirical work on ordinary people's intuitions. 
about when breach is wrong, when a party has enacted in good faith, etc. So how do you think that type of work should impact my own work as a contract theorist? In some cases, it seems to me obvious that if I wanted to make policy proposals, knowing, for instance, that consumers think in a certain way would be relevant to know how my proposal about consumer law will affect things on the ground or in practice. But if I write at a more general level, say if I am writing about the promise theory of contract or some similarly abstract theory, to what extent should that interpretive or normative theory be sensitive to or affected by this empirical information about expert or lay cognition about these concepts? Well, one answer that I think you'll find unsatisfying, but that I think I think I think applies to the kind of work you do is that I mean, we can always give the like legitimacy argument, right? That people need to see their morality uh, reflected, at least to some extent in the law in order to buy into it and to feel it's legitimate. And it's, you know, it's, it's moral authority comes from people, um, from people sort of agreeing, at least at some level, that the law is right. Um, So I guess you could argue You can tell that I don't think this is like the most persuasive argument in favor of experimental jurisprudence, but you could argue that at some level, you know, if the theorists were all super, super, super far off from what lay people thought, and when lay people hear like, that's how contracts work, like that's outrageous, that we could have a problem sort of um, consequentially down the line of people not, you know, not obeying the law um, or or losing some respect for it. You could argue that. But I think the more sort of a uh, particular answer because you could argue that about basically anything in law that the law needs to at some, right, at some point it needs to match I think sort of more particular is uh, so I'm not a contract theorist but I do really admire um, a lot of empirical work by Tess Wilkinson Ryan Dave Hoffman May Rob Firth Motskin lots of others um, I think the key, if I were if I were um, trying to break into like the experimental jurisprudence of contract space, the first step I would do is just try to identify where, in the theory, there is room for lay beliefs, lay expectations, norms, attitudes. It's got to be somewhere. This is law we're talking about. We're governing human behavior. So if you know. Um, it's been a while since I took contract law, but so if the uh, doctrines or the theory around, you know, reasonable reliance or, um, you know, if it is, if, if as an empirical matter, people believe that, you know, a promise is going to be enforced under X circumstances and that creates a reliance interest on their part, say, or, I mean, even like Kevin's, Kevin's research, on, uh, Kevin Toby's research on reasonableness may have some implications for contract law. Like he finds that um, the lay understanding of reasonableness, not just in contracts, but like in all uses of the word reasonableness, is sort of a hybrid between um, what people understand to be ideal and what people understand to be average. And so if a contract were to say something like, you need to... Um, you know, I'm hiring you as like a photographer for my wedding and you need to deliver the photos to me in a reasonable amount of time or something like that. You know, his research showing that like, okay, what do people think is the average amount of time a wedding photographer takes to deliver the goods? What do they think is the ideal amount of time? Let's take, you know, basically the arithmetic mean of those, uh, you know, a hybrid concept, the average of those, and somewhere around there is going to be a reasonable amount of time. Like that could be useful for understanding how an ordinary person is going to 
imagine reasonableness being um, uh, defined. Um, and so if contract law cares about what ordinary people think when they sign a contract that says, you know, reasonable amount of time, then I do think it's relevant. Um, uh, what, what is going on in people's minds when they, when they uh, understand a concept, like when they hear a concept like that. So I would, I mean, that's sort of the technique that I generally take is, is let's look for areas where in the theory it acknowledges a place for lay expectations, lay attitudes, norms, and then we can actually test those expectations, those attitudes, those perceptions of norms. And that can um, shed light, maybe not on like the highest, highest level theory, but at least on how people are um, uh, instantiating certain concepts. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, so so it, it makes sense to me that at a really high level of abstraction, the theories will not be particularly impacted by experimental work, but that there will also be spaces and situations where we want to know how ordinary people think and how that impacts the application of general abstract theories. So let me move on to more specific questions about your work. So you have written about consumer psychology and how it interacts with the practice of contract and with contract law. So why don't you tell us a bit about that work? Sure. So um, uh, Mayrav Firth-Motskin, who's a contract law scholar, um, and I teamed up for a series of um, experiments that sort of married my previous research on how Uh, ordinary people understand the relationship between consent and deception. That is, they generally don't see deception as, as devastating to consent as um, legal theorists have um, argued it should be. And um, in May Rob's uh, prior research, she had really shown that uh, first of all, people don't, (laughs) don't read the contract uh, and, uh, except for when something goes badly. And then when they do, they might go back and over-rely on um, the fine print and think that, uh, basically think that, basically overstate the extent to which they are bound by the fine print and not realize that there might be certain reasons why you won't be held to what you sign. Like there might be certain substantive uh, consumer protections and that sort of thing. Um, And so what we did was we investigated how, um, ordinary people would regard a scenario in which you are deceived about uh, the fine print um, in a contract. And basically what we find is that, um, I, I guess I shouldn't say you're deceived about the fine print, like you are deceived orally about a certain product. So one of our scenarios is like, it's based on a real case about uh, a woman who's buying a uh, like a cell phone plan and she's told orally by the um, salesperson that the plan is going to have certain a certain cost and there'll be certain fines. Um, but, but the salesperson is lying to her and the terms are actually quite different from what she understands them to be. The correct uh, information is disclosed in the fine print of the contract, which she signs without reading. Um, and the question is, you know, do you think that she's going to be stuck with what she signed or can she use the fact that she was like misled by the person seeking her agreement, um, uh, to get out of the contract? And generally people think that, uh, you're going to be held to what you sign. It sort of doesn't matter. And in fact, we found there was like no effect of the fact that you had been lied to. Like we compare a situation where you're lied to versus one where you're not lied to and you just 
have the mistaken view, people are not thinking that the fact that you're being lied to gives you any additional grounds to um, to void the contract. Um, and so this was just like a really stark illustration of how formalistic um, consumers, lay consumers are about um, being stuck with what is what is in the fine print, even if you don't attend to it, even if it's contradicted by what you're being told. And a real illustration of how people think that, you know, if you're lied to, yes, that's terrible, but it's not the kind of thing that's going to invalidate an agreement. There's a certain connection between this uh, work that you've been describing and other work, well, by Mayref herself, and also by other people like Tess Wilkins and Ryan before her, which seems to suggest that consumers tend to be really radical formalists. So they feel really bound by whatever it is they have signed, right? And they tend to interpret these writings in a really harsh manner against their own interests, even when that interpretation is not legally justified. So I wonder if this suggests that uh, we should spend more time or effort educating consumers about the law of contracts or whether it suggests some other response. So what do you think are the implications of this fact about consumer psychology that your work and others has uh, pointed at for legal policy? We could try educating consumers. Um, education is always, uh, you know, worth trying, but it's not always um, very successful in shifting people's uh, attitudes or behavior. Um, I think there are a couple of implications. I mean, most concretely, uh, Tess has called for the Tess Wilkins and Ryan has called for this. I think Mayrav has written about this too. A lot of people have written about um, sort of greater penalties for lawyers who include unenforceable uh, clauses in their contracts, because the idea being that um, the fact that these clauses are not legally enforceable does not mean that they don't do any harm. Uh, in fact, to lay people they assume that anything you sign is going to be held against you and enforced against you. And so it's, it may be deterring people from, you know, getting a lawyer from challenging a contract. They don't know it's unenforceable, but why would they think that? Um, why would it be in the contract if it's not enforceable? So maybe recognizing that that kind of practice is very harmful given like the lay expectation about what contracts are for and, and how they work um, and taking greater steps to deter it would be one step. Um, I'm working on a paper right now where I argue for a totally separate set of implications that flow from these findings. So um, in this paper, I'm arguing that um, there's been this trend in lots of areas, but especially in policing toward documenting consent in writing by having people sign consent forms every time they authorize a search, uh, for instance, of their car or their home, rather than relying on oral consent. And these reforms have often been pushed by um, civil liberties groups um, and, you know, sort of like police accountability groups as hoping that like, oh, if the police ask you to sign something, then you'll be more protected because you'll have a chance to like assert your rights. The thing you're signing says you have the right to refuse the search. You know, by signing this, you are acknowledging that you knowingly um, are voluntarily authorizing this you know, with full knowledge that it is fully optional and voluntary. Um, and uh, the argument that I think like this research on consu consumer and lay understandings of contract, um, the insight that that provides is that 
by asking somebody, by basically sticking a form in someone's face, this thing that looks a lot like a contract, it has a signature block at the bottom, I'm asking you to sign it, you're not going to read it, or very few of you are going to read it. If you read it, you're probably not going to understand it. Like that is going to activate a whole set of assumptions about um, what is going on that might be totally counterproductive. So maybe when a police officer asks you to sign a consent form and you sign it without reading um, what it says, or maybe you read it but you don't fully internalize that you don't have to authorize the search, then you might feel like your consent is less revocable because by signing it, you've you've promised, you've agreed, you've bound yourself in the way that a contract binds you. Of course, these consent forms say you have the right to withdraw at any time. And so they're telling you that it is revocable. And yet um, my worry is that the formality of the exchange, the fact that it resembles contracting, that it activates certain expectations around contracting, like when I sign this, I can't back out, I'm stuck forever. Um, and they can do whatever they want with me because I've already consented. Oops. Um, that that those associations that it activates are actually quite counterproductive to the idea of a consent form, which is that it's supposed to empower you and have you know what your rights are, including your right to say no and your right to say, never mind, I don't want to anymore. So um, that's a sort of implication that I see from this research on how ordinary people understand what signing a legal thing, which to them, they might not really understand what a contract is and how it differs from a consent form, but what what sign how knowing how people think about how, signing that thing is it going to affect them um, in lots of domains, including beyond the consumer context. Great. So let's go back to your paper on consent. Why don't you tell us a bit about that project in particular, which is called Common Sense Consent? What were you trying to answer, and what did you find? Common Sense Consent is examining what uh, other people have teed up as a puzzle, or Jed Rubenfeld called it a riddle, the riddle of rape by deception. So the riddle is that um, in many, many areas of law, if your consent is obtained by deception, it is not going to be considered valid consent. So if I use fraud to induce you to sign a contract, the contract will be voidable at the very least, potentially void. If I um, deceive you into allowing me um, to enter your property, I can be sued for trespass. Um, lots of examples. And yet, when it comes to sexual consent, the Riddler's note, um, we generally don't regard it as rape to lie to the person whose sexual consent you are seeking to obtain, even when the lie is uh, material important, uh, consequential to the uh, person's decision to agree to have sex. And so the question is like, why does deception invalidate consent in most areas of law, but not when it comes to sexual consent? And um, furthermore, um, does the fact that it, that in, in almost no jurisdictions, is it treated as rape to lie about, for instance, what your job is or your name or how much money you have or any particular fact about yourself. So let's say, you know, I'm at the University of Michigan. I would only sleep with another Wolverine. I would never sleep with somebody from Ohio State. Maybe lie about that, that sort of thing. The fact that that's not treated as rape, does that tell us anything about whether the crime of rape requires the use of physical force? So the idea here being that the traditional definition of rape um, uh, included an element of force, uh, that the sex needed to be by force and against 
her will. It was a gendered crime. And the more modern conception is that, you know, rape is not necessarily a crime of violence. Let's, you know, let's abandon this prototype of like a stranger in the alleyway with a knife pushed up against your throat and recognize that like rape can be perpetuated by um, people who um, are not violent um, and people you know quite well. And that really the wrong of rape is the violation of your autonomy, your choice, your decision, your control over who you sleep with, when, under what circumstances. And so, um, for instance, it doesn't matter if the person who is violating your consent is your own husband, someone you have consented to in the past. You have a right to say uh, no and to have that no respected, even if you know you uh, consented in the past or even if uh, no violence is used. So there's been this debate about what role does force play? Is is rape a crime of force or is it is non-consent alone enough to support um, uh, a conviction uh, for of rape? Like what should the crime of rape be? How should it be conceived? How should it be theorized? And one of the arguments in this debate is, well, if you just define rape as a lack of consent, we all know that deception invalidates consent. So now we need to start saying that it's rape if you lie about, you know, what school you're affiliated with or, you know, any number of facts. Lie about whether you're married to someone who wouldn't have agreed to sleep with you had they known you were married. And so doesn't that go too far, basically, is the argument that some um, have made? And doesn't that show us that really rape does require force? Um, because without the force, then we're left with just consent and these deception cases just don't seem like the kinds of things that we are gonna or want to or should criminalize. So where my research comes in is saying, well, it's interesting. If you actually look at how ordinary people regard the relationship between deception and consent, you will see that they actually reject this premise that deception invalidates consent. That is, they think you can give real valid consent even when you're being lied to by the person seeking your consent about something they know to be important about your consent. And that's true, that finding holds true in lots of domains, not just the sexual domain. So like some of my research asked people like, hey, there's a situation about a doctor who lies to a patient about a surgery and the patient agrees to have surgery on the basis of the doctor's lie and even had it be like a male patient so that we kind of, you know, look at the different uh, gender profiles of the different uh, characters involved. And even there, people are saying, I think he still consented. Even if the doctor lied to him, he still gave real valid consent. And in a way that also leads to them judging the doctor to be less deserving of punishment for committing a medical battery. And so if you recognize that, oh, wait, under the ordinary conception, they're actually, like, it's quite different from the way that the law and, like, legal theorists and philosophers have conceived of the relationship between deception and consent. I think that opens up this whole possibility that, you know, if you're somebody who thinks, like, it just doesn't seem like rape to me to lie about whether you're married or what school you're affiliated with or whatever, like, that might be not because force is absent, but it might rather be because you, like my participants, actually think consent is present. That is, you you actually think like, yeah, you have, you still have consented, despite the fact that you're being lied to about something that really matters to you. And so that's why it doesn't seem like rape. And it doesn't necessarily tell us that we need to embrace this force conception of rape. So what does this tell us? What should we do with this information? 
Well, I think it helps um, explain a couple of uh, patterns. So um, one, so for, for le- so from a legal theory perspective, which is what I take your question to be asking, because there are practical implications we could talk about, like, you know, juries decide consent questions and shouldn't we understand how juries understand consent? But from like a legal theory perspective, there's been lots and lots, I, I could name many examples of cases and theorists um, reasoning about consent obtained by fraud, um, analogizing to consent obtained by force or coercion or, um, yeah, sometimes by, by physical violence, and um, saying that deception will invalidate consent just as surely as force will, just as surely as, as, um, as coercion will. And um, there's a lot of... Uh, good reasons why you would think both of them are consent defeating um, for different reasons, but that they both are undermining of consent. Yet, when you look at our actual laws and actually look at the doctrines that we have, I think it's pretty clear that the law treats coercion much more seriously than it treats deception um, in lots of areas. So, you know, for instance, um, like one small example that I've been, you know, interested in as a law and psychology person is the way that police confessions, uh, police interrogations and confessions are regarded. So in the U.S., um, uh, police are allowed to lie to interrogees, but they're not allowed to coerce them. They're not allowed to say something like, if you confess, I will, um, you know, promise them some inducement, or, you know, if you don't confess, I'll arrest your wife or something like that. That's not allowed. That's seen as producing false confessions and coerced confessions. But you are allowed to lie. And you are sometimes even allowed to lie about the evidence against somebody. And to me, that suggests that despite paying lip service to this idea that deception invalidates consent just as surely as coercion does, like our laws are not descriptively treating deception as, as serious a consent defeater as coercion. So I think it carries some explanatory power about you know, how we're actually treating things versus how we say we're treating things. Second, I also want to talk about this very obscure doctrine that I actually think matches our intuitions pretty, um, in a pretty interesting way. So I mentioned earlier that, you know, some of us are looking at divergences between lay views and uh, legal theory and doctrine. Others of us are looking for overlaps. And in this project, I actually find evidence for of each kind. So like lay people are much more um, willing to say that you've consented just by being deceived than um, the law and legal theorists are. Um, but in this one area, I find like really interesting, subtle and surprising aspects of the law actually shared by lay intuition. So there's this um, doctrine about um, the types of fraud that are going to be seen as invalidating consent, um, particularly to um, to sexual contact and other bodily um, invasions. It's the distinction between what's known as fraud in the factum and fraud in the inducement. <clears throat> so um, you see this come up in, uh, for instance, um, the doctrine on uh rape by deception. So when will lying to someone to get them to have sex um, with you be treated as rape? And I, I know I said that the law does not generally regard sex by deception as rape, but there are a couple of key exceptions. So one of the exceptions would be um, quite obscure, but like uh, impersonation cases where you think you're sleeping with one person, 
But, you know, in the middle of the night, someone else sneaks into bed. Maybe it's someone who looks like your partner. Maybe it's someone who um, is impersonating your partner. And you have sex with them thinking that it is the person um, who you're thinking it's a whole different person. That generally will be seen as um, rape, especially if it's someone impersonating a spouse. Um, Another exception comes from... um, you know, very troubling cases with uh, doctors and other medical professionals who misrepresent sex as a medical procedure. So think of like Dr. Larry Nasser, the doctor for the uh, USA Gymnastics team, you know, lots and lots of sexual abuse, but the but many of the people he's abusing think that it's medical care. So um, those are considered rape uh, and non-consensual. And why are those lies seen as different or more serious than lying about you know, whether you're married or any of the other examples I've given. Well, the way that the law talks about it, you know, when judges are justifying this distinction is they'll say that, well, um, when you lie about who you are or like the nature of what you're doing, you think it's medical care, but it's actually sexual touching. Like those are lies that go to the very fact or to the very nature or the very heart, the very essence of the activity in question. Whereas when you lie about, you know, whether you're married or what school you go to or that sort of thing, that's a lie merely about an inducement or a collateral matter. And even if that lie is um, material and the person wouldn't have consented had you not lied, it's still not going to the heart of the activity in question. So we're not going to treat it as fraud in the factum. We're not going to treat it as completely vitiating consent. We're going to say, you know, it's not good to lie, but it's not the same as... um, it's not going to support a rape conviction in, in, in the criminal law. And there's like a corollary uh, uh, doctrine in tort law and also in contract law um, with the Nemo Dot principle. Um, so with my um, research, uh, I've tried to come up with um, uh, scenario studies, survey experiments that uh, try to get at this distinction I've always thought it was very slippery and hard to get your head around. Like, what is a lie that goes to the heart of something versus a lie that merely goes to like a tangential matter, but yet one that might have still been really important to the person to try to really understand what's going on. And so um, uh, basically what I find is that lay people do seem to have an intuitive um, uh, fraud in the factum versus fraud in the inducement distinction that they draw. And they do sort of endorse this idea that like some lies will invalidate consent. It's not the lies that matter most to the individual themselves, the one who's consenting, but rather it's these lies that really just seem to go to the heart or essence of the transaction itself. I can give an example of one of those studies. So for instance, in one of the experiments that I designed, it's a scenario about a guy um, named Steven. He has a credit card that uh, generates certain reward points when he makes purchases. He happens to be really close to um, having enough reward points to redeem them for a trip to Europe, which he really wants to do. He just needs to make a few more purchases uh, by the end of the weekend. And so he decides he's going to go to the store that generates these points and he'll make a purchase. He doesn't actually care what he's buying. He'll get the points and he'll go to Europe. Great. So in one version of the scenario, the salesperson at the store lies to him about what he is buying. So he thinks he's buying a toy bicycle that he's planning to just donate to charity because he doesn't actually need the thing. He just wants the points. 
But really, what comes in the mail is a toy camera. In the other version of the scenario, Stephen is lied to about whether when he purchases that bicycle, it will generate points. So he's told, like, yes, this is eligible for the points promotion, when really it's not. So in one version, he's lied to about what he's buying. And the other version, he's lied to about whether the purchase will generate the points. And so I asked participants two questions. The first is, you know, how much did the lie matter to Steve? And the second is, how much was Steve's consent undermined? And so the results show that people say that the lie about the points matters more to Steve. That is, they can tell you, like, he doesn't actually care about what it is. He cares about the points. On the other hand, when you ask, like, was his consent undermined? Actually, the question I asked them is, was there consent in this situation? They will say that there was greater consent in the situation where he's lied to about the points and less consent in the situation where he's lied to about what he's buying, even though they recognize that he cares more about the points. So what does this show? It shows that people can tell you what he cares about, but that's not what their consent judgments are tracking. Their consent judgments track this other thing, which is like, did the thing you get match the thing that you were promised? Like, is it a whole different item? Or is it like the same item, it just doesn't have the features that you thought it would have and that you cared a lot about? And so the fact that people are saying like your consent is undermined when you get the wrong thing really matches the way that the law thinks about fraud in the factum and how it's more serious in consent defeating than fraud in the inducement. And it also underscores that this is not necessarily about sex. Specifically, people have the same judgments about, you know, buying toys and it's not about people um, thinking that the more essential lie is more important to the individual. Because when I've sort of uh, adjusted the scenarios to uh, cross it so that you care more about the tangential collateral inducement, uh, people will still say that your consent is more undermined when um, you're lied to about what the object is. So it's not about subjective preferences. And so I think that sheds light on this um, this weird old doctrine that lots of people have said makes no sense and uh, cannot be justified. Um, I don't think it justifies it, but it does explain like, hey, there's something uh, intuitive going on here and it's not just about um, sexual consent. Excellent. Well, with that, I wanted to thank you again, uh, Rosanna, for being a guest and for a really interesting conversation. And Although I have written critically about experimental jurisprudence, I think it's a really interesting development that we should be paying attention to. So I invite all my listeners to read your work and the work of other people writing on experimental jurisprudence. Thank you, Rosanna. Thank you. Thanks for having me.